0: Michigan, March 1966, a wave of UFO sightings sweeps the state. Hundreds of witnesses report strange lights and objects. Enter Project Blue Book skeptic Dr. J. Allen Hynek to investigate what would become one of the most infamous cases in UFO history. Hynek concluded that the sightings were caused by swamp gas, which basically is when gases from decaying matter accumulates and causes a chemical reaction, resulting in a glow. This glow is very faint, and usually can only be seen at night. This explanation angered a fearful populace. Even future President Gerald Ford disliked Hynek's investigation, saying, In the firm belief that the American public deserves a better explanation than that thus far given by the Air Force, I strongly recommend that there be a committee investigation of the UFO phenomena, I think we owe it to the people to establish credibility regarding UFOs and to produce the greatest possible enlightenment of the subject. Welcome to the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. Take two. Alright, I just want to throw out a quick disclaimer there. This is my, uh, my first episode and uh trying my best here with the audio quality and stuff, but uh not super experienced with recording and everything, so I apologize in advance. Um the first take I had the microphone way too close and it you know just sounded like I don't know, like mouth breathing. It was horrible. Anyways, this is the take two. Uh hopefully it's a little bit better, and um, you know, it'll get better with further episodes, I hope. Swamp gas. Uh this one's really interesting because you still see this come up all the time. People will just say, oh, it must have been swamp gas. Um, for example, my kids were playing uh, Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare 2. There's a character on that game called the Alien Flower, and uh, it says uh, in the description for the character, it talks about weather balloons and swamp gas. So uh, I don't know when that, that game was probably from like 2015 or 2016. So even, even today, I mean, it's a couple years ago, but still, we hear about this all the time. It, that's just, it's so infamous. Um, so I think it was a, a really good one to do for a first episode. Okay, so next we're going to do the mind boggle of the week. Uh, I say week. Hopefully, I hope to do weekly episodes. We'll see. Okay. Strange events. Bizarre facts. The unbelievable made real. This is the mind boggle of the week. The Bolander Memo. 1969. Air Force Brigadier General Bolander issued a memo that argued for the closure of Project Blue Book. Blue Book was the Air Force's UFO investigation that began in 1952 and ended in 1970. It followed Project Sign in 1947 and Grudge in 1949. People believed in the sincerity of this investigation. However, the memo suggests another purpose for Blue Book. According to the Air Force, Blue Book could be closed because 1. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force has ever given any indication of threat to our national security. Pay attention to that one. Number two, there has been no evidence submitted or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represent technological developments or principles beyond the range of present-day scientific knowledge. And number three, there has been no evidence indicating the sightings categorized as unidentified are extraterrestrial vehicles. Okay, the government has claimed since the closure of Blue Book in 1970 that it no longer investigated UFOs. Um, more recently, we know that's not true because there was there was that whole, uh, you know, AATIP or whatever it was. But anyways, the Bullender memo states, Reports of unidentified flying objects which could affect national security are made in accordance with JANAP 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. Okay, so let me read that again. That's not the whole quote, but I just want that to sink in a little bit. You remember earlier where they said that uh, part two... Number two they or, uh, no, number one, they said specifically no UFO reported, investigated and evaluated has ever given any indication of threat to our national security. That's what they said when they closed Blue Book. Now here in this Bolander memo, which was released in 1969 just before they closed it, it says, reports of unidentified flying objects which could affect national security are made in accordance with JanAP 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. The defense function could be performed within the framework established for intelligence and surveillance operations without the continuance of a special unit such as Project Blue Book. Termination would have no adverse effect on Air Force operations or research programs. Reports of UFOs which could affect national security would continue to be handled through the standard Air Force procedures designed for this purpose we see no reason why the normal channels and criteria for the funding of scientific research should not be adequate for UFO-related research. Okay, well, that's, uh... So in other words, they basically were just lying through their teeth when they closed Blue Book down and they said that there was never anything that they were worried about for uh, national security. I mean, they're just completely full of crap. And this also supports an idea that uh, a lot of people think that Blue Book wasn't really an investigation but it was just a front to debunk sightings, so they, they weren't looking for the truth at all, they just wanted to sweep everything under the rug. And plus, uh, this suggests, or I mean, it doesn't suggest, this proves that they continued investigating after Blue Book, and even during Blue Book, um, they had a separate investigative branch. Now, I've looked into it, other people have looked into it, and as far as I can tell, nobody can find out what the normal channels were, or are. That's, secret and nobody knows. Uh, But um, this definitely proves that there was a second way of investigating these things. Okay, and here's another interesting part of the Bolander memo. If Project Blue Book is terminated, the records should be transferred to an appropriate archive and preserved for historical value and to prevent charges that the Air Force is concealing facts. So they say right there, they say that we're worried about people accusing us of concealing facts. Well, why would they be worried about that if they weren't concealing facts? Um, that's pretty interesting. Uh, that's pretty typical of all the documents I can find that have been released to the public. You're never going to find a document that says, yeah, we are concealing facts. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff like this that basically says that they're concealing facts. Okay, and it says, access to these records and the publications must... Be carefully reviewed and controlled. S-A-F-O-I feels that an Air Force controlled archive away from the Washington, D.C. area is the most appropriate storage facility. So they're basically saying, yeah, we need to have them somewhere, but put them out of the way make them hard to get to so that your average person can't just go and get them. You have to travel, and it costs a lot of money, so not that many people can just go look at the files. But we're in luck because they're online now. I'll I'll, uh, give the link later for that. So these are just some highlights from the memo. Um, the document JANAP-146 or J A N or JANAP-146 referenced in the memo, it's the Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146, Communications Instructions for Reporting Vital Intelligence Sightings or Service for short. This document uh, dates to 1953 and has been revised throughout the years. The most recent mention of it was from AFI 10-206 in 2011. So check that out. This document was first made in 1953 for reporting this stuff. And the most recent mention of it that we know of was in 2011. So that's that's pretty interesting if you think about it. Okay, the AFM or Air Force Manual 55-11 dates to 1965. Um, It's really big and it's not just for UFOs, but in general, its purpose is stated as the Air Force Operational Reporting System is essential to provide headquarters, USAF, and other Air Force agencies with current and accurate operational information to meet responsibilities associated with planning, state of readiness, employment, and direction of aerospace forces. Well, there you have it proof that the Air Force has always been interested in UFOs and have been lying about it for a very long time. It boggles the mind. Why the secrecy? What are they concealing? Alright, now, back to the Michigan sightings. There were so many sightings before, after, and during the Michigan wave that all describe a similar object. These encounters didn't just happen in Michigan, but all over the nation. The two sightings that became the focus of this event, however, Uh, happened in Dexter and Hillsdale in Michigan on March 20th and 21st of 1966. But we're going to start a little, a few days earlier than that, because there's a a handful of sightings that are super interesting to look at. March 14th, 1966. Washtenaw County police officers witnessed UFOs moving about the skies. The following statement by deputies Patterson and Broderick document what happened. 3.50 a.m. Received calls from Deputies Bushrow and Foster, car 19, stating that they saw some suspicious objects in the sky. Disc, starlight colors, red and green, moving very fast, making sharp turns, having left to right movements, going in a northwest direction. 4.04 a.m. Livingston County Sheriff's Department called and stated that they also saw the objects and were sending a car to the location. 4.05 a.m. Ypsilanti Police Department also called and stated that the object was seen at the location of U.S. 12 and I-94. 4.10 a.m. Monroe County Sheriff's Department called and stated that they also saw the objects. 4.20 a.m. Car 19 stated that they just saw four more in the same location moving at a high rate of speed. 4.54 a.m. Car 19 called and stated that two more were spotted coming from the southeast over Monroe County. 4.56 a.m. Monroe County stated that they just spotted the object and also that they are having calls from citizens. Called Selfridge Air Force Base and they stated that they also had some objects over Lake Erie and were unable to get any ID from the objects. Okay, that one's really interesting because... Um, I wasn't able to find any verification of this or any records of this, but that suggests that Selfridge Air Force Base had the objects on radar and what they say, unable to get any ID from the objects. Usually, uh, airplanes will have some sort of transponder or something that automatically sends the airplane's ID to, uh, to the radar station so that they know what it is. Um, that's really interesting. I, if anybody out there knows what the hell they're talking about, let me know okay five thirty a m Deputy Patterson and I looked out of the office and saw a bright light that appeared to be over the Ypsilanti area. It looked like a star but was moving from north to east 6 fifteen a m as of this time we had as of this time we have had no confirmation from the air base and uh if anybody out there is trying to look this stuff up or google it or whatever um I had to look up how to pronounce this actually but um Ypsilanti is spelled Y P S I L A N T I. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Okay, another officer said of the morning's events This is the strangest thing that we have ever witnessed. These objects could move at fantastic speeds and make very sharp turns. Dive and climb and hover with great maneuverability. March 17. Sergeant Schneider and Deputy Fitzpatrick witnessed top-shaped objects maneuvering in the skies. They hovered, zoomed around, all while dimming and brightening. Three objects were reported, two flying together and a third hovering below. March 20. Dexter, Michigan, 8.30 p.m. Bob Wagner contacted the Washtenaw County Sheriff Department to report a strange object in the swamp at the end of McGinnis Road. The object was on the ground, rose 500 feet in the air, then came down making a lot of noise. Deputies McFadden and Fitzpatrick went to investigate. When they arrived, Mr. Wagner reported the object had been in the area for about 30 minutes. Lights on the object turned from blue-green to brilliant red to yellow. It appeared to have trouble getting off the ground. Frank Manor, a resident of the area, had also seen the object and was searching the swamp with his son when the officers arrived. The officers also searched the swamp from a different direction. While searching, they observed a brilliant light behind a ridge. Upon approaching, the light dimmed in brilliance. They were not able to locate it. The officers returned to their patrol vehicle where they met others who had gathered to watch the UFO. These witnesses reported seeing an object hovering over the area where the officers' flashlight beams were seen. The object departed at high speed towards the west. The officers then drove to Frank Manor's residence. Mr. Manor told them that he and his son witnessed the object while searching the swamp. The object was brown with a quilted texture. It was flat on the bottom with a cone-shaped top and about the size of a car. It had two small lights on the outer edges that glowed blue-green and intensified to brilliant red. There was a hazy mist underneath. The objects moved across the swamp about 500 yards in the blink of an eye. When it moved, a horizontal light between the two smaller lights illuminated yellow white. After observing the object in the swamp for a few minutes, the manners saw light from the two officers' flashlights on the ridge above the object. The light from the object intensified, went out, and a whistle similar to the sound of a bullet ricochet was heard as the object passed directly over the manners at an incredible speed. The other officers who arrived at the scene after Deputies McFadden and Fitzpatrick also witnessed strange things. Officer Robert Hartwell reported that a luminous object buzzed his car. Dexter Police Chief Robert Taylor described the object as pulsating red. Through binoculars, he saw that it had a light on each end. The chief's son also witnessed the object and said, It was going on in the east pretty slow, and then it sped up and went west. It was flashing red and white. Deputy Bushrow reported chasing the object, saying, It looked like an arc. It was round. We turned around and started following it through Dexter for five miles. It was headed west and we stopped. We lost it in the trees. Either the lights went off or it took off with a tremendous burst of speed. It was about 1,500 feet above the ground. It moved along at about 100 miles per hour. We were doing 70 before losing it near Wiley Road. Shortly after the UFO left the swamp, the Chelsea Police Department reported seeing a similar object. It hovered before departing to the west at high speed. The object was once more sighted in Webster. March 21st On the evening of March 21 at 10.32 p.m., the Office of Civil Defense received a call from the new Woman's Domitory at Hillsdale College. A student reported that some type of craft had descended from the northeast, flashed by their dormitory, and disappeared to the south. The student described the observing of red, green, and white pulsating lights. At approximately 11 p.m., the Civil Defense Office received a second call informing that the object had reappeared and settled close to the ground. It was half a mile from the dormitory. Mr. Van Horn from the Civil Defense Office went to investigate. From the second floor of the dormitory, he observed an object at a distance of 1,500 to 1,700 feet. He saw two lights, a dim orange on the right and off-white on the left. After observing this for 10 minutes, the lights began to grow in brilliance. The dim orange became red. As the lights became more brilliant, the object began to rise. It rose to 150 feet, where the lights quickly dimmed as it got higher. The object made the ascent and descent some four times between 11.30 p.m. and 1.45 a.m. Van Horn reported that the object had a convex shape. More sightings were reported in other areas. Macomb and Oakland counties, Bad Axe, Flint and Ann Arbor, Detroit, Lansing, Pontiac, Vicksburg, Battle Creek, Xenia. the list goes on and on. People were upset and wanted answers. Enter Project Blue Book. On March 24th, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the scientific advisor for Plot Project Blue Book, arrived in Hillsdale. He interviewed witnesses and concluded the sightings were caused by swamp gas. This explanation was so absurd that even today it is used, along with Venus and weather balloons, as a shorthand for pseudo skeptic debunkery. The Blue Book case file is available online. It's a really interesting read. Basically, there wasn't any real investigation. All they did for this case was try to disprove what the witnesses saw by ignoring them, changing what they said, or making them look crazy. So the most interesting thing might not be the actual sightings, but how the documents show a government cover-up. The report is really long, like 170 pages or something. It's way too long to read most of it on this podcast, so I'm just going to pull out some highlights from it. First, I'm going to look at some things that Hynek said. Um, He had an internal report in the Blue Book file, but he also made a lot of public statements about the case. Um, It's interesting to compare the two, but here's some of the more interesting things that he said. He said, The only two observers who did describe an object have stated that they were no closer than 500 yards, better than a quarter of a mile away, a distance which does not allow the details to be determined. Um, This is just clearly and totally false. A lot of witnesses reported seeing objects and many of them were closer than 500 yards. Uh, There was an officer who reported uh, an orb flying right next to his car. Um, And then there was the manners who reported the object flying right over their head as it left. It's just, it's completely ridiculous. Okay. This next statement, uh, I'm going to analyze this a little bit because I think it's, uh, it's important to pick these things apart sometimes and, and really challenge these people on what they're trying to say. Okay, here it is. A dismal swamp is a most unlikely place for a visit from outer space. It's not a place where a helicopter would hover for several hours, or where a soundless secret device would likely be tested. Oh, that's a, there's a lot of deception in there. That's two sentences. <laughs> okay, first notice how he says it's not a swamp, it's a dismal swamp. Obviously, he's trying to color the narrative there. Um, next, he says, aliens would not want to visit a swamp, but how would he know what aliens want? The underlying suggestion is that people are the most interesting thing on the planet, but maybe we're not any more interesting to aliens than cows or amoebas or whatever. Um, with that in mind, a swamp might be the most likely place for aliens to visit because it's just teeming with life. It's just packed full of bacterias and plants and all kinds of interesting stuff. You got decaying going on. I think it's the most likely place for aliens to visit. Okay, next he says that the witnesses could have seen a helicopter, but none of the witnesses reported anything like a helicopter. And he says that uh, it's not a place where a helicopter would hover. Well, how does he know that? It might be, uh, they might be filming a movie, or maybe they're looking for an escaped prisoner. It's just, I mean, he's just making it up. It's complete nonsense. Okay, and then last he talks about a secret device test. But keep in mind that Hynek was, he was a civilian investigator. He was 100% ignorant of secret technology, and he would not have been briefed on any tests. Whatever the military was up to, Hynek didn't know anything about it. It is, maybe it is possible that a secret government plane was having mechanical difficulties. If so, then the pilot wouldn't be able to choose where to come down. He would just come down wherever he came down. And finally, uh, he said it was silent. But it wasn't. It made noise. Uh, Several witnesses said that they heard it making noises. This statement is a perfect example of how pseudo-skeptics operate. They say stuff that seems completely reasonable, but when you break it down, it turns out that what they're saying is completely made up. Every part of those two sentences is complete nonsense. Literally every word is the opposite of the truth. But it's worse than that. He's not just lying about it. The way it's worded suggests that anyone who doesn't believe him is a crackpot. It feels like an ad hominem attack against whoever's hearing the statement. This kind of manipulation is how they operate. They can't argue against the evidence, so instead, they just say that all the witnesses are crazy. And if you believe what any of the witnesses say, you're crazy too. Don't let them get away with it. I won't split hairs with every statement, but this is pretty much how it goes. Uh, Look how they debunk a lot of these cases. My favorite is the uh, triangle sightings in Illinois in 2000. One debunker said that it was Venus. Venus. A lot of people said they saw triangles, big giant triangles hovering over fields and houses and things. Uh, Yeah, it wasn't Venus. It's just, it's completely ridiculous. Next time you hear a debunk, just pay attention to what they're really saying and don't let them get get away with just making stuff up like that. Uh, Don't let them make people feel bad for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, having something weird happen, and then trying to report it. We should be able to talk about this stuff without being considered Crazy or crackpots or without losing our jobs or anything like that. Okay, rant over, I guess. All right, next, uh, we'll look at a statement from Heineck uh, where he specifically attacks Van Horn, and this is pretty much how it goes. Like I said, he doesn't investigate anything, he just goes after witnesses and tries to make them look like morons. Okay, he struck me as a man who becomes enamored with an idea and tends to lose objectivity in favor of the idea. He tends to ride a hobby horse. And was indicated when he marshaled all his forces at a later date to set out to prove the marsh gas hypothesis wrong. All right, that's a pretty good burn, right? Um, now, if you didn't know anything about the case and you were just seeing this on TV or whatever or reading it in the paper, you'd think, "Dang, well, this guy uh, Van Horn must be—he must be a uh, pretty wacky, right? He rides a hobby horse and all this other stuff." So, a little bit later, we'll we'll see what Van Horn has to say about this subject. Um, Hynek's is, uh, when he says here at the end, he marshaled all his forces, Hynek's a little, uh, little miffed at Van Horn because he looks at Hynek's swamp gas theory and completely tears it apart. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. This next one from the report is uh Hynek talking about, well, here, I'll just read it all through the investigation. I made discreet inquiries relative to character reference and general reliability of other witnesses. And came away with the general impression that I had not been dealing with seasoned and careful investigators, but rather with men untutored in reporting matters outside their normal line of reporting—license plates, accidents, etc.—but not angular rates, angular distances in the sky, brightnesses, and in general, time-motion sequences. So, uh, like I already said, that's—he's pretty much saying right there exactly what what I thought when I first started reading this—is he's not really investigating the case he's investigating people. At one point, he said that he was underfunded and understaffed, he didn't have enough people to interview everybody. If he didn't have enough time to interview everybody, why is he wasting time investigating the witnesses instead of the actual case? Okay, this next one is uh, one of my favorites, where he talks about the swamp gas explanation itself. I can't state with any certainty that this is the correct solution to the problem, merely that it is the most likely cause I would, of course, appreciate learning of other possible natural causes should they be forthcoming. So what I said before, where they're never going to release a document that just comes out and says, yeah, we're making this stuff up or we're covering up stuff, you have to read between the lines. But if you pay attention, it becomes pretty obvious after a while. So look at what he says here. He would appreciate learning of other natural causes. So he's not investigating anything. He just wants... A natural cause to explain away whatever people were seeing. Maybe it was a natural cause, but if you're really, if you're really committed to a scientific investigation, you're going to look at the evidence. you're not going to try to find a cause to fit the evidence. That's pretty much how it goes with pseudoskeptics. They have a conclusion, and then they'll force fit the evidence to that conclusion. Uh, it's not scientific at all. OK, here's another one from Heineck, which is, when you read the whole report, then you get to this part. It's really kind of weird. In putting forth the swamp gas explanation of the major Michigan sightings, I am aware that it is open to several objects. We do not know whether swamp lights ever appear at the near-freezing temperatures that obtained in those areas. If these were swamp lights, one may well ask why they have not been seen in those localities before. One may also ask why not at other swamp areas in Michigan, instead of just these two, I am also concerned that the Michigan sightings bear a slight resemblance to other UFO sightings in which swamp areas do not figure. I am also concerned that I had to neglect the peripheral evidence of the few people who said they thought an object had been present. Well, what's going on here? Didn't he just say that he investigated the people and they all seemed like a bunch of crackpots? Or he said, uh, specifically, he said uh, he came away with the general impression. That I had not been dealing with seasoned and careful investigators. So this is uh, this statement is really weird. Um, it's almost like there's two different people writing this report. So you know Heineck has one opinion, but the higher ups are telling him that he uh, he can't really say what he thinks. He said they he has to explain it away as swamp gas. That's what I suspect. I don't know. who knows. All right, let's get to some good stuff here. This is what Fanhorn said in. Um, In response to Heineck. So remember, Van Horn, he was the major witness from the Hillsdale sighting, along with uh, some students. But he didn't like what Heineck said about it. He didn't like his explanation of swamp gas. He said it was a whitewash. Uh, He doesn't just tear him apart here, but he also proves that Heineck was lying about some things. So Heineck says Witnesses have described glowing lights, lights that seem to move but never far from a definite locale, or which suddenly disappeared and popped up at another place. And Van Horn responds to this, This was by no means the description that was given Dr. Hynek. It is very evident that his description as stated in his release could have been taken from any one of many books describing marsh gas. Okay, here's Hynek. Now what was the locale in both instances, in both cases a swamp? And Van Horn points out, The Hillsdale area where the observation was made is not a swamp, but rather a wooded area. Hynek says, In both cases, the location of the glow was pinpointed. It was a very localized phenomenon. I think that this is a most significant point. And then Van Horn responds to this by saying, This was definitely some type of vehicle which had the ability to ascend and descend and to move very freely and smoothly from one side to the other, and in doing so, both lights being observed moved uniformly and remained a stationary distance apart. Hynek says, The lights were red, green, or yellow, and they appeared to move sideways and to rise a short distance. Van Horn says, I do not call lights ascending and descending to and from a height of 100 to 150 feet a short distance. Okay, another part of the statement, Hynek says, I have never seen swamp gas myself, and I can easily understand the dismay of the witnesses. It would seem to me that the association of the sightings with swamps in these particular cases is more than coincidence. Here's what Van Horn has to say. Dr. Hynek states that he has never seen the phenomenon of marsh gas. I have personally many times witnessed this as a young boy having been raised near a swamp in Jonesville, Michigan. I can very assuredly state we were not observing marsh gas the evening of March 21st. Okay, Hynek says, No group of witnesses observed any craft coming to or going away from the swamps. Van Horn says about this, Dr. Hynek is way off in left field on this statement. He was told not only by myself, but also by the college girls of the observation made by the 17 girls of the approach of the object from the northeast, flashing by their window, disappearing to the south, and then appearing over the area and descending to where we observed it. Dr. Hynek was not interested in listening to this type of information, and was extremely evasive on any questions that were asked regarding anything such as this. In addition, the glow was not localized as stated by Dr. Hynek, but rather the lights did, as I have stated before, ascend and descend and move from side to side in a uniform manner. Next up, Hynek says, It appears very likely, however, that the combination of particular weather conditions that night, there was little wind at either location. Uh, Here Van Horn gives a lot of weather data for the nights of the sightings. I won't go through all the data, but in a nutshell, it was very windy And freezing cold. Here's what Van Horn has to say about it. The air has to be extremely quiet and calm for marsh gas or methane to accumulate and glow. The wind conditions would provide that this could not happen. Marsh gas is produced from rotting vegetation. This process of decay is created by bacteria. There's an optimum temperature at which these bacteria are most active, and that temperature is from 35 to 40 degrees Celsius. A temperature of 60 degrees Celsius will destroy them, and as the temperature lowers below 35 degrees, the bacterial action will become retarded and the process of decay is slowed or eventually stopped. It is my sincere belief that the bacteria requiring a temperature of 35 degrees to 40 degrees optimum temperature and our average mean temperature being negative 1 degree Celsius, that it would have been impossible for little gas, if any, to have been present at this time of the year. If any gas was present, my contention is that it could not possibly have been present in quantity enough to last for the period of time that we were making the observation. Alright, now here's what Van Horn has to say about Hynek's investigation in general. It was my considerate opinion that Dr. Hynek had his mind made up as to what his findings would be before he ever reached the city of Hillsdale. I also observed that his main line of questioning was relative only to that which would fit the marsh gas theory. Although there was nothing, to my knowledge, from the information given to Dr. Hynek that would fit the marsh gas theory, he irregardless found it fit to state that marsh gas is what we were observing. Dr. Hynek was not, or at least didn't to me, display any interest in the type of movement of the vehicle that we were observing, nor did he volunteer any thought or explanation of the observation the girls had made of the object descending from the sky which prompted them to call the Civil Defense Office." With the aforementioned thoughts in mind, and having seen many of our good people laughed at and ridiculed and caused embarrassment because they reported most sincerely that which they had witnessed, my men and myself for the past seven weeks have conducted a most sincere and open-minded investigation into the UFO situation in our own locality. Previous to our original sighting on March 21st, I could have been considered a skeptic, However, now after seeing the investigation that was conducted here in Hillsdale by the U.S. Air Force, and after conducting our own investigation in-house for seven weeks, I am firmly convinced that the UFO does exist. And in conclusion, I would state that if the investigation conducted is representative of our Uf- U.S. Air Force, then I feel that our people have a great deal more to be concerned about than the UFO's situation." It is my belief that the Air Force could use a more tactful mode of investigation than has been used in the past, rather than that, which makes those people who in all sincerity report something to look like fools. All right, I bet they weren't expecting that. Not only did he completely rip apart Hynek's argument, he did it without without sounding crazy. Well done, Mr. Van Horn. And I totally agree. I mean, look, you should be able to, if you see something and it frightens you or you're worried, you should be able to talk about it or report it without being made fun of. There, a lot of people see strange stuff, and they don't even necessarily say that we saw aliens. They just say, look, I saw something weird. There's stuff flying around. We don't like it. And you shouldn't be treated uh, treated like an idiot for that. Okay, now the next interesting thing that I found from the report was a memo that summarized the sighting. Uh, it's interesting because the memo is addressed to a USAF HQ Air Defense Command AFSC at Andrews Air Force Base, and the Secretary of the Air Force. I think a couple more as well. And uh, in other words, this report was sent to the very highest levels of military command. The Secretary of the Air Force is the head honcho. They're in charge of everything. It's publicly appointed and they report directly to the Secretary of Defense. So they were paying attention to this. Despite trying to make uh, witnesses feel bad or brush it off as nothing they were really paying attention to this case. I mean, there's no memo saying, oh yeah, we're concerned about this. But um, the fact that they were sending a description to the very highest levels of the military, I think that's really interesting. Okay, um, next I found, uh, there's a communication log in there where there's some really interesting things that they noted. So here's uh, something from Major Brokaw, a base operations officer at Selfridge Air Force Base. All right, you paying attention? Hold on to your butts, people. This was this is a good one. Okay, preliminary analysis gives no basis for disbelief in the sighting nor clue to its identity. Based on this report and that of news media of the area, which also covered Mister. Manner's sighting and that of other unknown witnesses, believe this to be a factual report of an unidentified flying object. All right, so this is an internal uh, internal communications log. And I'm going to read that again just for emphasis because this is probably the best thing I found in the in the case file. This is really interesting. He says, now again, this is from Major Brokaw, a base operations officer. He says, preliminary analysis gives no basis for disbelief, no basis for disbelief in the sighting nor clue to its identity. Based on this report and that of news media of the area, which also covered Mr. Manner's sighting and that of other unknown witnesses, believe this to be a factual report of an unidentifying flying object. All right, there you go. Uh, They didn't know what it was and they knew it was real. So he's saying right here, Hey, we don't know, but it was something. Um, I was kind of surprised to find this in the file. So, I mean, they're never going to, like I said, they're never going to come out and say it was this or that, but you can find evidence that they were a little perplexed by some things. You know, so it wasn't ours probably. And, I really don't think that the Russians would have sent, uh, you know, some sort of spy plane to look at a farm or a swamp or, um, you know, or some college students or whatever. Uh, who knows? Anything's possible, I suppose. But this is the kind of stuff you can find if you really dig through the files. Put it together and you get an interesting picture. Okay, here's the next one from a commu- from a communications log as well. Major Hector Quintanilla of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at Dayton, Ohio Said earlier today that the Air Force hoped to come up with a reasonable explanation of the objects within the next 24 hours. And uh, I don't think I said this before, but Major Hector Quintanilla was the head of Project Blue Book at the time of this sighting. And this is really interesting because, uh, again, this was not meant for public eyes. This was not a publicly released statement. And here it is. They're saying it right here that he wants to come up with a reasonable explanation within the next 24 hours. It doesn't say yeah, we're going to figure out what it was. We need a few months to investigate it, to send some stuff to the lab and test it out, whatever. No, they're just saying, yeah, we're going to explain it away. So uh, another actually kind of surprising thing to find in the file because it pretty much proves that they were covering it up. I mean, like I said, they're never going to come out and say, yeah, it was a cover-up. So you got to look at what you have available to you. All right, now this next one I found, um, I wasn't able to really verify this anywhere else. So I don't know if this is true. Uh, but it's, here's a quote from a call log. It says, Mosley said that Hynek did not want to give the answer about the gas, that there was a violent argument between Hynek and major Quintanilla. But if this is true and Hynek didn't come up with a swamp gas idea, uh, that, that makes it pretty interesting. Doesn't it remember Hynek's conclusion where he says it wasn't the swamp gas. His report was really weird, almost like it was written by two different people. At one hand he says, yeah, they're all crackpots, but yeah, there was totally a UFO there. Okay, last one from the report. At the time, the Michigan sightings were national news. A lot of people were upset and concerned about them. So naturally, the government wanted to ask the Air Force about it. I mean, the civil government. Well, they did, and here's what happened. This is a log, again, a, a call log. And it says, Major, Major Quintanilla spoke with Major Gregory at AFSC SCFA regarding telephone conversations with Congressman Vivian. Last week, Congre- Congressman Vivian called us direct and requested we inform him prior to press conference of Dr. Hynix. We informed SAFOI and they said LNL would take care of it. Major gave a rundown of the conversation of 23 March 66 with Vivian. General Cruikshank wanted us to report what transpired yesterday, 28 March 66, to S- at SCFA. Gregory said that paragraph 7 of AFR 200-2 indicated that Congress were not to go directly to us. Gregory would inform SAFOI of the above. Crazy, right? This isn't like, you know, a lo- little mayor or a, a citizen calling up the Air Force. This is the federal government, pretty much the highest levels of civilian government, calling up the military and saying, hey, hey, guys, we're a little worried here. What's going on? And the Air Force is basically saying, nah, don't worry about it. Um, it I don't know. It's kind of scary if you think about it. This is the sort of thing President Eisenhower was talking about when he left office. It makes me wonder who's really in charge. If the senators can't ask about this stuff, who can? Uh, And also notice how they say, well, this manual says we can't talk to them about it. But guess who wrote that manual? The Air Force wrote that manual. It wasn't approved by anybody. It was a completely internal thing. So they're just making up their own rules. They're saying, okay, all of a sudden, we don't have to talk to anybody about this because we said so. So there's no accountability to the government, to the publicly elected government. Okay, so that's uh, like I said, that's it for the highlights I wanted to do talk about from the case file. There's a lot of really interesting discussions about this on the internet because it, even though it's a really old case, it's still it's a really you know popular one to talk about and it's really interesting. I'm not going to do too many of these, but I found a couple of interesting comments about the case. So first, Mike Fortson says, "I was 13 when this happened. We lived in Kokomo, Indiana. We were watching the news." Channel 13 out of Indianapolis. Frank Edwards was telling of the saucer sightings in his broadcast. My parents were very concerned about this. No one believed in the swamp gas theory. These are all uh, internet names from uh, from forums, by the way. So these people, eh, maybe they're making it up, but they seem sincere to me. Okay, next. Pimander says, It's almost as if they wanted us to think it was aliens, as even that seems more plausible than swamp gas. Yeah, I can go with that one. Alright, As Your Skies says, I witnessed UFOs on two separate occasions in 66. One was pursued by some type of jet plane that came up out of Selfridge Air Force Base. It was full daylight and at least 20 other people observed the same thing. Not swamp gas at about 10,000 feet. Okay, so that's, that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about for this case. Um, it's a really interesting case. There's so much material. I could probably do like five episodes on it. Uh, it's really, it's Many, many cases kind of rolled up into one, uh, but that's, that's the basic idea. When I look at it, my take on it is that I don't know what happened, but it's really, really obvious that they were just covering it up. Okay. So the blue book file, you can find it online. Uh, a lot of times when you search for blue book uh, links point towards bluebookarchive.org, but that one was down. Um, I, I don't know why, but that one's no longer there. So I did find this at fold3.com forward slash image forward slash one forward slash eight six seven one five eight four. Okay, that's once again, that's fold3.com forward slash image forward slash one forward slash eight six seven one five eight four. The file is... I don't think it's really marked with anything that would identify it as the famous Michigan swamp gas case. Uh, So it was a little difficult to find. Okay, so the the Blue Book file is definitely worth a look. It has a lot of different stuff in there. It's not just the Hynek report. It has like newspaper clippings, drawings of the UFO. It has maps of the areas where they were sighted. There's a ton of stuff in there. Uh, Some of it is illegible. Some of it is out of order. Um, so it takes a little bit of legwork to kind of sort out what is where and figure out what's going on. But, uh, anybody who's curious about the case, there is just so much to read about just in the blue book file, like with the newspaper clippings and that kind of stuff. And then when you go look at other resources, it just goes on and on and on. Okay. So after looking at the evidence, it's pretty obvious that a physical craft or object was seen by tons of people. It could be a secret plane of some kind. It didn't behave like any jet helicopter or anything that we had that I could find about, but it's possible that whatever it was is still classified. It was a long time ago, so it seems impossible that we could have technology that could fly like this. But uh, keep in mind, in 1966, we had some pretty crazy stuff already. Uh, For example, the Lockheed A-12, which was the predecessor to the SR-71, started flying in 1963. The SR-71 in 1966 and the D-21 supersonic drone in 1969. Yeah, we had a drone that could go supersonic in 1969. Um, And just to keep in mind uh, how advanced the SR-71 was, it wasn't decommissioned until 1999. So uh, I'll say that again in case it didn't sink in. The SR-71 was so advanced for its time that we kept using it until 1999. They started developing plans for nuclear-powered aircraft in the 1940s, and the first working nuclear engine was made in 1956. Uh, as far as I can find, they never got nuclear airplanes to work. There were too many technical problems to overcome, like weight, it was too heavy, and that kind of stuff. Um, but if they did develop it, and they're still using that kind of stuff, it might still be secret. I Actually, I want to do an episode on nuclear-powered airplanes, because it's, there's really interesting... Um, no conspiracies or anything. It's just, you know, interesting stuff. Okay. Anyways, the point is, is that back then the military had some really crazy advanced stuff. I, w- I couldn't find anything that could explain the sighting, but who knows, you know, it's possible that there's something they had that we don't know about that, uh, you know, maybe they were testing and it broke down or who knows it, you know, there's also the possibility that it could be uh, Russian or something like that, um, which I think is less likely than it being one of ours. Because the, you know, like the witnesses said that it was uh, having mechanical difficulties and because it stayed in the, the areas for a couple of hours, um, especially in the Hillsdale sighting, it was there for, you know, hours and hours. So, you know, if it was Russian, they would have gone and gotten it by that time. So I, I don't think it was the Russians, but hey, you never know. Uh, now, of course, that, that brings us to another possibility that it was uh, extraterrestrial visitation. Is this a possibility? I think this is a real possibility for this case. Uh, there's really, there's no proof of this, of course. Uh, it's just, you know, but it's fun to speculate about. Uh, one thing I think that is, is really funny is when skeptics will say that the stars are too far apart. It couldn't have been E.T. He couldn't possibly get here through the vast distances of space. Well, uh, first of all, guess what? Proxima Centauri, is what is that like, you know, eight light years away or three light years, something like that. Anyways, really not that far if you think about it. But uh, keep in mind that we don't know a lot about science. Um, just not that long ago. Well, let's take radio waves, for example. Radio waves were discovered in the 1800s. In the context of human history, you know, as far as all of our scientific knowledge and discoveries or whatever, um, that's just that's like a blink of an eye. That's just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, There was this whole vast part of reality that we just couldn't perceive. We were completely ignorant about it. It was there. We just didn't know it. So it seems really arrogant to me to say that we know everything there is to know about science, and we know that it's impossible to travel vast distances quickly. I think that we don't know what we don't know, and there's a lot that we don't know. All right. After Blue Book closed down uh, in 1970, Heinick did a complete 180. He was no longer a skeptic. He spoke out against Blue Book and how it was run. The way he said things, I don't think he could just come out and say whatever he wanted. I think he was probably under some sort of NDA or whatever. But he did say some stuff like this. During Air Force Major Hector Quintanilla's tenure as Blue Book's director, the flag of the utter nonsense school was flying at its highest on the mast. I guess he didn't like Quintanilla. On the other hand, that's pretty much what Heinick does. He just talks smack about people, so who knows. But because he says stuff like this and the way he words it, it seems to me like he wants to say that everything was covered up, but he can't say that. So instead, he'll say that, you know, he doesn't say anything bad about the major Hector Quintanilla specifically. He said during his tenure, the flag of nonsense was flying at its highest. So he doesn't even... Direct, directly attack the head of Blue Book here. It, the way he does it, it just really seems to me that he's not able to come out directly and say what he wants to say. He kind of has to do it in this roundabout way. Hopefully at some point I can do an entire episode on Hynek. He was a pretty interesting character. I mean, he was the head of, or he wasn't the head. I mean, he was the civilian investigator for Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book. In an interview... At one point, Heineck was asked, What began to change your own perception of the UFO phenomenon? Heineck responded, Two things, really. One was the completely negative and unyielding attitude of the Air Force. They wouldn't give UFOs the chance of existing, even if they were flying up and down the street in broad daylight. Everything had to have an explanation. I began to resent that, even though I basically felt the same way, because I still thought they weren't going about it in the right way. You can't assume that everything is black no matter what. Secondly, the caliber of the witnesses began to trouble me. Quite a few instances were reported by military pilots, for example, and I knew them to be fairly well trained. This is when I first began to think that, well, maybe there's something to all this. The famous swamp gas case, which came later on, finally pushed me over the edge. From that point on, I began to look at the reports from a different angle, which was to say that some of them could be true UFOs. His tone here is completely different than when he held the famous Swamp Gas press conference. This case changed his mind in some way about UFOs. Uh, it was a pivotal case for him, and I suspect part of that may be how it was handled. So I imagine it when something like this, he calls up the major and says, Hey, this is really weird. There's something going on here. And then the major says, Swamp Gas, dude. It was Swamp Gas. Uh, so... I don't know. Again, you're never going to find a document that says that. But if you read between the lines and you look how Heineck on one hand says one thing, and then he says a completely different thing later on, it, he's just really inconsistent on this case. So I, I don't know. I think his hand was forced, but who knows? Okay, so I want to end the episode with this quote from uh, from Dr. Heineck, and this is from later on after he did his 180. He says, I hold it entirely possible that a technology exists which encompasses both the physical and the psychic, the material and the mental. There are stars that are millions of years older than the sun. There may be a civilization that is millions of years more advanced than man's. We have gone from Kitty Hawk to the moon in some 70 years, but it's possible that a million-year-old civilization may know something that we don't. I hypothesize an M&M technology encompassing the mental and material realms. The psychic realms, so mysterious to us today, may be an ordinary part of an advanced technology.